Chapter 50 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 6. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter 50 Louis the Fourteenth and Death, 1711-1715, Part 1. Quote, One has no more luck at our age. Louis the Fourteenth had said to his old friend Marshal Villars, returning from his most disastrous campaign. It was a bitter reflection upon himself which had put these words into the king's mouth. After the most brilliant, the most continually and invariably triumphant of reigns, he began to see fortune slipping away from him, and the grievous consequences of his errors successively overwhelming the state. Quote, God is punishing me, I have richly deserved it, he said to Marshal Villars, who was on the point of setting out for the Battle of Denain. The aged king, dispirited and beaten, could not set down to men his misfortunes and his reverses. The hand of God himself was raised against his house. Death was knocking double knocks all round him. The Grand Dauphin had for some days past been ill of smallpox, the king had gone to be with him at Meudon, forbidding the court to come near the castle. The small court of Monseigneur were huddled together in the lofts. The king was amused with delusive hopes. His chief physician, Fagon, would answer for the invalid. The king continued to hold his counsels as usual, and the deputation of market women, or Dame de la Halle, came from Paris to have news of Monseigneur, went away, declaring that they would go and sing a Te Deum, as he was nearly well. Quote, it is not time yet, my good women, said Monseigneur, who had given them a reception. That very evening he was dead, without there having been time to send for his confessor in ordinary. Quote, the parish priest of Meudon, who used to look in every evening before he went home, had found all the doors open, the valets distracted, Fagon heaping remedy upon remedy without waiting for them to take effect. He entered the room, and hurrying to Monseigneur's bedside, took his hand and spoke to him of God. The poor prince was fully conscious, but almost speechless. He repeated distinctly a few words, others inarticulately, smote his breast, pressed the priest's hand, appeared to have the most excellent sentiments, and received absolution with an air of contrition and wistfulness. Memoire de Saint-Simon Meanwhile, word had been sent to the king, who arrived quite distracted. The princess of Conti, his daughter, who was deeply attached to Monseigneur, repulsed him gently. Quote, you must think only of yourself now, sir, she said. The king let himself sink down upon a sofa, asking news of all that came out of the room, without any one's daring to give him an answer. Madame de Maintenon, who had hurried to the king, and was agitated without being affected, tried to get him away. She did not succeed, however, until Monseigneur had breathed his last. He passed along to his carriage between two rows of officers and valets, all kneeling and conjuring him to have pity upon them who had lost all and were like to starve. The excitement and confusion at Versailles were tremendous. From the moment that smallpox was declared, the princes had not been admitted to Meudon, the Duchess of Burgundy alone had occasionally seen the king. All were living in confident expectation of a speedy convalescence. The news of the death came upon them like a thunderclap. All the courtiers thronged together at once. 
the women half-dressed, the men anxious and concerned, some to conceal their extreme sorrow, others their joy, according as they were mixed up in the different cabals of the court. Quote, it was all, however, nothing but a transparent veil, says Saint-Simon, which did not prevent good eyes from observing and discerning all the features. The two princes and the two princesses, seated beside them, taking care of them, were most exposed to view. The Duke of Burgundy wept, from feeling and in good faith, with an air of gentleness, tears of nature, of piety, and of patience. The Duke of Berry, in quite as good faith, shed abundance, but tears, so to speak, of blood, so great appeared to be their bitterness. He gave forth not sobs, but shrieks, howls. The Duchess of Berry, or daughter of the Duke of Orléans, was beside herself. The bitterest despair was depicted on her face. She saw her sister-in-law, who was so hateful to her, all at once raised of that title, that rank of Dauphiness, which were about to place so great a distance between them. Her frenzy of grief was not from affection, but from interest. She would wrench herself from it to sustain her husband, to embrace him, to console him. Then she would become absorbed in herself again with a torrent of tears, which helped her to stifle her shrieks. The Duke of Orléans wept in his own corner, actually sobbing, a thing which, had I not seen it, I should never have believed, adds Saint-Simon, who detested Monseigneur, and had as great a dread of his reigning as the Duke of Orléans had. Quote, Madame, redressed in full dress in the middle of the night, arrived regularly howling, not quite knowing why either one or the other, inundating them all with her tears as she embraced them, and making the castle resound with a renewal of shrieks when the king's carriages were announced on his return to Merly. The Duchess of Burgundy was awaiting him on the road. She stepped down and went to the carriage window. Quote, "'What are you about, madame?' exclaimed Madame de Maintenon. "'Do not come near us. We are infectious.' The king did not embrace her, and she went back to the palace, but only to be at Merly next morning before the king was awake. The king's tears were as short as they had been abundant. He lost a son who was fifty years old, the most submissive and most respectful creature in the world, ever in awe of him and obedient to him, gentle and good-natured, a proper man amid all his indolence and stupidity, brave and even brilliant at head of an army. In 1688, in front of Philipsburg, the soldiers had given him the name of Louis the Bold. He was full of spirits and always ready, quote, reveling in the trenches, says Vauban. The Duke of Montausier, his boyhood's strict governor, had written to him, quote, Monseigneur, I do not make you my compliments on the capture of Philipsburg. You had a fine army, shells, cannon, and Vauban. I do not make them to you either on your bravery, it is an hereditary virtue in your house, but I congratulate you on being open-handed, humane, generous, and appreciative of the services of those who do well. That is what I make you my compliments upon. Quote, Did I not tell you so? proudly exclaimed the Chevalier de Grignan, formerly attached, as menin, to the person of Monseigneur, on hearing his master's exploits lauded. Quote, For my part, I am not surprised. End quote. Racine had exaggerated the virtues of Monseigneur in the charming verses of the prologue of Esther. Quote, 
thou givest him a son an ever ready aid apt or to woo or fight obey or be obeyed a son who like his sire drags victory in his train yet boasts but one desire that father's heart to gain a son who to his will submits with loving air who brings upon his foes perpetual despair as the swift spirit flies stern equity's envoy so when the king says go down rusheth he in joy with vengeful thunderbolt red ruin doth complete then tranquilly returns to lay it at his feet End quote. in sixteen ninety and in sixteen ninety one he had gained distinction as well as in sixteen eighty eight the dauphin has begun as others would think it an honour to leave off the prince of orange had said and for my part i should consider that i had worthily capped anything great i may have done in war if under similar circumstances i had made so fine a march whether it were owing to indolence or court cabal monseigneur had no more commands he had no taste for politics and always sat in silence at the council to which the king had formally admitted him at thirty years of age quote, instructing him says the marquis de sorge with so much vigour and affection that monseigneur could not help falling at his feet to testify his respect and gratitude twice at grave conjunctures the grand dauphin allowed his voice to be heard in sixteen eighty five to offer a timid opposition to the edict of nantes and in seventeen hundred to urge very vigorously the acceptance of the king of spain's will quote, i should be enchanted he cried as if with a prophetic instinct of his own destiny to be able to say all my life the king my father and the king my son heavy in body as well as mind living on terms of familiarity with a petty court probably married to mademoiselle chouin who had been for a long time installed in his establishment at meudon monseigneur often embarrassed and made uncomfortable by the austere virtue of the duke of burgundy and finding more attraction in the duke of berry's frank geniality had surrendered himself without intending it to the plots which were woven about him Quote, his eldest son behaved to him rather as a courtier than as a son gliding over the coldness shown him with a respect and a gentleness which together would have won over any father less a victim to intrigue the duchess of burgundy in spite of her address and her winning grace shared her husband's disfavour the duchess of berry had counted upon this to establish her sway in a reign which the king's great age seemed to render imminent already it was said the chief amusement at monseigneur's was to examine engravings of the coronation ceremony when death carried him off suddenly on the fourteenth of april seventeen eleven to the consternation of the lower orders who loved him because of his reputation for geniality the severity of the new dauphin caused some little dread Quote, here is a prince who will succeed me before long said the king on presenting his grandson to the assembly of the clergy by his virtue and piety he will render the church still more flourishing and the kingdom more happy that was the hope of all good men fenelon in his exile at cambrai the dukes of beauvilliers and chevreuse at court began to feel themselves all at once transported to the heights with the prince whom they had educated and who had constantly remained faithful to them 
the delicate foresight and prudent sagacity of fenelon had a long while ago sought to prepare his pupil for the part which he was about to play it was piety alone that had been able to triumph over the dangerous tendencies of a violent and impassioned temperament fenelon who had felt this saw also the danger of devoutness carried too far Quote, religion does not consist in a scrupulous observance of petty formalities he wrote to the duke of burgundy it consists for everybody in the virtues proper to one's condition a great prince ought not to serve god in the same way as a hermit or a simple individual Quote, the prince thinks too much and acts too little he said to the duke of chevreuse his most solid occupations are confined to vague applications of his mind and barren resolutions he must see society study it mix in it without becoming a slave to it learn to express himself forcibly and acquire a gentle authority if you do not feel the need of possessing firmness and nerve you will not make any real progress it is time for him to be a man the life of the region in which he lives is a life of effeminacy indolence timidity and amusement he will never be so true a servant to the king and to monseigneur as when he makes them see that they have in him a man matured full of application firm impressed with their true interests and fitted to aid them by the wisdom of his counsels and the vigour of his conduct let him be more and more little in the hands of god but let him become great in the eyes of men it is his duty to make virtue combined with authority loved feared and respected court perfidy dogged the duke of burgundy to the very head of the army over which the king had set him fenelon always correctly informed had often warned him of it the duke wrote to him in seventeen o eight on the occasion of his dissensions with vendome quote, it is true that i have experienced a trial within the last fortnight and i am far from having taken it as i ought allowing myself to give way to an oppression of the heart caused by the blackenings the contradictions and the pains of irresolution and the fear of doing something untoward in a matter of extreme importance to the state as for what you say to me about my indecision it is true that i myself reproach myself for it and i pray god every day to give me together with wisdom and prudence strength and courage to carry out what i believe to be my duty he had no more commands in spite of his entreaties to obtain in seventeen o nine permission to march against the army quote, if money is short i will go without any train he said i will live like a simple officer i will eat if need be the bread of a common soldier and none will complain of lacking superfluities when i have scarcely necessaries it was at the very time when the archbishop of cambrai was urgent for peace to be made at any price quote, the people no longer live like human beings he said in a memorial sent to the duke of beauvilliers there is no counting any longer on their patience they are reduced to such outrageous trials as they have nothing more to hope they have nothing more to fear the king has no right to risk france in order to save spain he received his kingdom from god not that he should expose it to invasion by the enemy as if it were a thing with which he can do anything he pleases but that he should rule it as a father and transmit it as a precious heirloom to his posterity he demanded at the same time the convocation of the assembly of notables 
it was this kingdom harassed on all sides by its enemies bleeding exhausted but stronger nevertheless and more bravely faithful than was made out by fenelon that the new dauphin found himself suddenly called upon to govern by the death of monseigneur and by the unexpected confidence testified in him before long by the king Quote, the prince should try more than ever to appear open winning accessible and sociable wrote fenelon he must undeceive the public about the scruples imputed to him keep his strictness to himself and not set the court apprehending a severe reform of which society is not capable and which would have to be introduced imperceptibly even if it were possible he cannot be too careful to please the king avoid giving him the slightest umbrage make him feel a dependence founded upon confidence and affection relieve him in his work and speak to him with a gentle and respectful force he should say no more than can be borne it requires to have the heart prepared for the utterance of painful truths which are not wont to be heard for the rest no puerilities or pettiness in the practice of devotion government is learned better from studying men than from studying books the young dauphin was wise enough to profit by these sage and able counsels quote, seconded to his heart's content by his adroit young wife herself in complete possession of the king's private ear and of the heart of madame de maintenon he redoubled his attentions to the latter who in her transport at finding a dauphin on whom she might rely securely instead of one who did not like her put herself in his hands and by that very act put the king in his hands the first fortnight made perceptible to all at merly this extraordinary change in the king who was so reserved towards his legitimate children so very much the king with them breathing more freely after so great a step had been made the dauphin showed a bold front to society which he dreaded during the lifetime of monseigneur because great as he was he was often the victim of its best-received jests the king having come round to him the insolent cabal having been dispersed by the death of a father almost an enemy whose place he took society in a state of respect attention alacrity the most prominent personages with an air of slavishness the gay and frivolous no insignificant portion of a large court at his feet through his wife it was observed that this timid shy self-concentrated prince this precise piece of virtue this bit of misplaced learning this gawky man a stranger in his own house constrained in everything it was observed i say that he was showing himself by degrees unfolding himself little by little presenting himself to society in moderation and that he was unembarrassed majestic gay and agreeable in it a style of conversation easy but instructive and happily and aptly directed charmed the sensible courtier and made the rest wonder there was all at once an opening of eyes and ears and hearts there was a taste of the consolation which was so necessary and so longed for of seeing one's future master so well fitted to be from his capacity and from the use that he showed he could make of it the king had ordered ministers to go and do their work at the prince's the latter conversed modestly and discreetly with the men he thought capable of enlightening him the duke of st simon had this honour which he owed to the friendship of the duke of beauvilliers and of which he showed himself sensible in his memoir fenelon was still at cambrai quote, 
which all at once turned out to be the only road from all the different parts of Flanders. The archbishop had such and so eager a court there, that for all his delight he was pained by it, from apprehension of the noise it would make, and the bad effect he feared it might have on the king's mind." He, however, kept writing to the Dauphin, sending him plans of government prepared long before, some wise, bold, liberal, worthy of a mind that was broad and without prejudices, others chimerical and impossible of application. The prince examined them with care. Quote, he had comprehended what it is to leave God for God's sake, and had set about applying himself almost entirely to things which might make him acquainted with government, having a sort of foretaste already of reigning, and being more and more the hope of the nation, which was at last beginning to appreciate him. End, quote. End of chapter 50, part 1